It is a joy and a privilege to be before you today. I wish I had time to tell all of you our journey over the last couple of years so you would understand the significance of this moment, but I had let go of ever being a pastor at a church again. So this is a big, this is a big deal for me, this moment. A couple of things I want to share with you right off the beginning. Right off the beginning, I'm not sure that's a real phrase, but from the beginning. So I am predictably unpredictable. So just because you hear this sermon today done this way doesn't mean the next time you hear me it'll be anything remotely close to that. Uh, sometimes I'll dress down kind of like this. Sometimes I'll wear a robe just because I can uh, or anything in between. And so just want you to know that off the bat so you, after you walk away today you're not like, boy, every time he preaches that's going to be something. Uh, so also I want to let you know this message is kind of an in-house message. And what I mean by that is it's for the capital C Church of Jesus. It's specifically also for KPC. So for those of you that might be here today that don't yet know the Lord, I want you to still listen. There's going to be some parts that are going to be very applicable for you. But by and large, this is a message directed towards those who know Jesus this morning. How many of you have ever been to a conference or some kind of special worship service where it's almost as if you could catch a glimpse of who God really is? Not who you want Him to be, not who you think He might be, but it's actually as if He showed up in that moment. Back in the uh, early 2000s, late 90s, there was this phrase going around, I haven't heard it recently, called the manifest presence of God. It's kind of like when God himself manifests and shows up. I want you to think about that time. If you've come to know the Lord of Kings and the King of Lords, then you have had at least one experience like that. That would be the moment you came to faith. But maybe it's that all the way to the biggest and most highly attended conference you've ever been to, somewhere in between. I want you to take that experience and go there and again in your mind and think back. Remember how you felt? Remember what thoughts were going through your head? Remember what it was like to be in the presence of God? For me, the year was 1997. I was a sophomore in college. I had just finished the fall semester and had already celebrated Christmas with my family and was back in Valdosta, Georgia. I remember boarding a bus with a group from the Baptist Student Union and heading to San Antonio, Texas for the first time. I was going to a conference that none of us knew much about, hadn't really heard much about it, and didn't know what to expect when we got there. But isn't that just what college students do? Like, we don't know much, we're just going to go anyway. So it was called Passion 98. When I arrived on New Year's Day, we were given arm bracelets that said Passion 268 on them. And at the very first session of the conference, while everyone was still milling around, doing what they do, the, the Passion Worship Band began to play this song. I just want you to listen to it. Put yourself there. This is what I heard. This is the live recording from that conference. Send your rain, oh Lord. 
So the worship continued, but from that moment on, I was changed. It was led by a group called Watermark, and there was a guitar player there named Chris Tomlin, who had no name other than a guitar player with Watermark. I had already given my life to Jesus, but it was at that place that God shared with me what it means to be truly personal with Him. See, Passion 98 wasn't a conference. Yeah, I got the bracelet and I got a cool CD, but it was about a commitment. It was a decision to be part of something much bigger than myself because it was a movement, a declaration to the world that I would live my life in accordance to His ways and not my ways. On the last day there, they gave each of us this card. Still got it. 268 student declaration. They told us to go home, pray about it, and see if you'd be willing to join that movement. Three months later, in March of 1998, I decided to sign on, and I'm still signed on. My life was changing, and I knew God was calling me into the ministry, and my college career was fluctuating all over the place. I'm sure my dad remembers those days. 
By the time Christmas had rolled back around again, my major had gone from music performance to music education to philosophy, and I still had one more major change to go. A year had passed, and I found myself boarding a bus again, off to Texas again, this time three buses instead of one, this time over 80 students instead of just over 20. It was Passion 99, and instead of 4,000, there was 11,000. It was at Passion 99 that God beat me up. I've consistently used that phrase because after every session, I felt exhausted. Who Chris Greenwood used to be was quickly becoming this person I didn't know, and I was changing so rapidly based on the Word of God that was being presented. And that's exactly the way God wanted it. In Passion 99, I felt God calling me into the mission field, to that place that no one ever really wants to go when they hear about that. Yes, to Africa, to Senegal, to the capital city of Dakar, 98% Muslim. Why I didn't end up going there and instead went to Belize is another story for another day. It's a long story, but we're not going to get into that right now. All of this is post 9-11. All of this is a work of the Lord working itself out in me. But now I want you to join with me in this. Think back now to that time I had you picture. How are you today in relation to that day you pictured? How are you now in comparison to where you were? Where's the passion level? Where's the desire? Let me pray for just a second. We're looking at one verse today. One verse. Let's just pray and ask that the Lord would help us be a people who desires what He desires above all else. Lord, if You would simply get me out of the way and you would become more and I would become much less. Thank you that this message is not dependent upon the messenger. Lord, I pray that it would be received. Even this morning during our prayer time before the sanctuary, I asked that you would make this place a blank canvas and that you would paint a new thing on it. That we would be a people who understand your heart today and would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 26, 8, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Yes, Lord. Two simple words. One has three letters, one has four. Together, that makes seven. They teach you that at seminary. It's an amazing thing. Those two words in combination would revolutionize the Christian world, if we would say them on a regular, daily basis. The Spirit urges you to speak words of life and hope to that cashier in line. What's your response? Yes, Lord? You're watching TV one night and God impresses you, impresses on you to turn the TV off and pray for Sally or Hector. What's your response? Is it yes, Lord? The kids want some of your attention, and God urges you to give it to them, but you just want to veg out. What's your response? Is it yes, Lord? Your spouse has had a hard day at work and needs your support, and God leads you to be there for them, but you're tired too. So what is your response? Is it yes, Lord? 
A man at the next table over at the restaurant, it just keeps using the Lord's name in vain over and over and over and over and over again. And as a child of the king, you know you ought to say something. But do you? Is it yes, Lord? In many ways, all of our Christian life begins and ends with these two words. It's those two words that start us on our spiritual journey. It's those two words that keep us on the journey. And it's those two words that should escape off our lips when he calls us home. Well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, Lord. Walking. Walking implies motion, activity, progress. And ours is a walking faith. In Genesis, God came walking in the cool of the day. Every king of Israel was judged based on the way David had walked. There was one walking in the fiery furnace with those three Hebrew boys. Jesus came to the disciples walking on the sea. Jesus called Peter to walk to him on the water. The lame walked after being healed in the Gospels in the book of Acts. So by walking, we're referring to the living out of our faith. How many of you know it's quite possible to have faith and not have an active faith? I don't have time to preach on this today, but let me say a major struggle in every church is to balance and rightly encourage what's been called the trinity of the Christian life. The head, what we believe, the heart, or the head, what we know, the heart, what we believe and feel, and the hands, what we do. It's very, very hard to find a church that balances those three things. So this word walking speaks to the hands of the Christian life trinity or what we're to live out with our lives. In My Utmost for His Highest, a few weeks ago, Oswald Chambers used this nautical illustration. It fits, we're at the beach. If you yourself do not cut the lines that tie you to the dock, God will have to use a storm to sever them and send you out to sea. Put everything in your life afloat upon God, going out to sea on the great swelling tide of His purpose, and your eyes will then be opened. If you believe in Jesus, you are not to spend all your time in the calm waters just inside the harbor, full of joy, but always tied to the dock. You have to get out past the harbor into the great depths of God and begin to know things for yourself, begin to have spiritual discernment. We are to be active in the way we live out our faith. Yes, Lord, walking, but how do we walk? Well, we shouldn't walk aimlessly. It's not like we don't have a guide. We aren't to walk in self-reliance. We should know better than to depend on ourselves. And we don't walk in the determination of our own choosing. Don't we know by now that if it's up to us, we'll go the wrong way? So then how should we walk? In the way of your truth. There are many ways to walk in this world, but the Bible is very clear that in Christ there is only one way, the way of truth. I remember being surprised to learn that the word way is used in scriptures to describe a perfect singular way over 600 times. Jesus declares in John 14, 6, I am the way. In Matthew we read, broad is the gate, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And the Psalms are full of admonitions to walk in the way of the Lord. In a world increasingly doubtful of absolute truth, we're called to trust God and say by faith, yes, Lord, we will walk in the way of your truth. But we do not walk without a goal and without a purpose, nor do we walk without guardrails to keep us on the road. 
It's those guardrails I want to take a minute and talk to you about. The capital T truth, or in some translations, laws, or capital L law, is this thing that we're supposed to be guided by. It's the law that guides us on the road. One of our reformed understandings of the law is that it's our schoolmaster or our teacher to keep us going the way we're supposed to go. It also instructs us so we can be like a tree planted by streams of living water, like Psalm 1 says. It grounds us in how we must walk. And what did Jesus say the summary of the law was? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are our guardrails. To love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourself. And we find ourselves in the middle of that road walking. If we stray outside of loving God, and if we're not loving our neighbors, we have drifted from the truth. So yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth. But what then? What do we do next? We wait eagerly for you. Pastor Chris, how are you going to tell us we're supposed to walk and then tell us we're supposed to wait? That doesn't make any sense. The answer is by understanding they're not in opposition. One is a lifestyle of exercise as we walk, for it says we must work out our salvation in Philippians 2.12. The other is an attitude of expectation as we wait. Our lives are to be exercised or lived out in response to his leading. And then as we're living those obedient lives, we're to be eagerly expecting him to come, to work, to move, and even to return. So let me ask you, what are you eager for? Do you wake up Saturday and find yourself wishing it was Sunday? Does that sound strange to you? Your eagerness scale might not be working. Does the upcoming lunch meeting with one of the members of your small group add anticipation to your day? Are you looking forward to being with those that are in fellowship with you? Does that sound strange to you? Then your eagerness scale may not be working. Do you find yourself excitedly wondering some days, is this the day that Jesus is going to come back? If you don't, if you just go day after day and never, never wonder about that, your eagerness scale may not be working. Do you wake up each morning grateful that today you have another chance to dig into God's Word, to come before Him in prayer, or even to tell someone about His wonderful grace and mercy? Do you wake up thinking that at all? If not, your eagerness scale may not be working. Pastor Steve, this is my first sermon here at KPC, so how much truth can they handle? Because I, I can kind of level off right here. Don't if, level off. You want to keep going? Okay, all right, all right. I didn't know, I didn't know. <clears throat> Here's the reality. Most of us are much more eager about the opportunity to go out and eat and not have to do dishes than we are about anything spiritual at all. That's just truth. The reality for me is that sometimes I'm a lot more eager to put the hootie hoos to bed and go buy some Chipotle and come back and do nothing than I am to do anything else spiritual for 30 more minutes. That's my truth. And when I get like that, 
my eagerness scale. It's not working. But eagerness for God's truth is only half the battle because eagerness naturally reveals what we desire most. So the question we have to ask is, what do I desire above all else? Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. What do you desire above all else? To get married? To have your first child? To be done with school? To have a better job? To see this church grow to 2,000 members again? To be successful? To have the respect of your spouse? To know your kids are going to be okay? To know on a regular basis that your spouse loves you? to not be sick anymore. None of these desires are bad, but they must not be the chief desire of a follower of Christ. We must desire Christ and Christ alone, His name and His renown. What is renown? What is this word you use? It means His reputation, His glory, His majesty. When the magnification of God's name and God's glory are the two things you desire above all else, when they are this church's desire above all else, then God will do things our minds can scarcely comprehend. Yeah. Fill in the rest of this verse if you know it. Be still and... That's it. One of the pet peeves of mine, I'm a discipleship guy, I can't stand half verses. <laughs> be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among all the nations, and I will be exalted in all the earth. Psalm 46.10. See, here's the thing. God doesn't need you, and He doesn't need me. He's going to accomplish His will with or without us. Does that bother you? In our very self-centered, egotistical, all-about-me culture, does that rub you the wrong way? I mean, come on, God, you need me. I'm me. He doesn't need us. He does desire you. I want you to hear the difference between that. Which God do you want? Do you want a God that needs you? Or do you want a God that desires you? Which one's greater? A God that depends on you? That's no God. Or a God that doesn't need you at all, but is chosen to desire you? It's not about demanding, it's about desiring. It's not about needing, it's about knowing. It's not about performing, it's about passion. Now let me be clear. There will be a day when God demands. There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and people from every tribe and every nation will proclaim Him for who He is as Lord of kings and kings of lords. But that is not yet this day. There will be a day when His wrath is poured out and the very elements will burn away, but that is not yet 
this day. There will be a day when the lost, those lost in the waywardness of their sins are declared forever lost, but that is not yet this day. There will be a day when it will be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God, but that is not yet this day. For on this day he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he still offers hope and grace of the salvation through the wonder that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so hear the wonderful good news of Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. That is the day. For we do not know what tomorrow brings. For those of you in the room that do not know this majestic king we're speaking of, do not delay. For none of us can predict the time of God. Do not waste the moment. But that is exactly the reason why the 268 declaration of Isaiah 26.8 is not for wimps. It's for real deal followers of Jesus. For too long the church has softened its message from the pulpits to preach mamby-pamby Christianity and little buddy foo-foo Jesus running through the forest with the little bunnies chasing after him. God desires for his name and his renown to be exalted among all the nations and throughout the earth. Yes, he desires you, but it's because he wants to make himself known to invite those who are not a people to become his people, to see the fallenness of the world through his eyes and not your own eyes. He wants men and women, boys and girls who can look this world in the eye and say, I don't need anything you have. I don't desire anything you can offer. I am not swayed, moved, or convinced by all that you can entice me with. And for the sake of his name and his renown, I will die if it's demanded of me because I'm fully, holy, and completely satisfied in Jesus. That's what Isaiah 26 8 is about. I've accepted a call to KPC to declare war on low bar Christianity. <laughs> I don't know where you are, and I don't know where this church has been or currently is. I'm figuring it out. But I can tell you that with every fiber in my body, so long as I and Pastor Steve and Neil and Mark are here, it will never be acceptable to just get the fire insurance and go live your life. It will never, ever, ever be acceptable. And here's why. When Jesus came and was born to a virgin, causing her to be the topic of vicious rumors for the rest of her life, lived a sinless life, immensely harder than we can possibly realize, he suffered and died at the hands of vicious, sinful, and corrupt, unjust humanity, and rose from the dead, displaying his power over sin, hell, and the grave. It wasn't so Christians in 2016 can say a little prayer and then go live some mediocre, immature life that makes a mockery of his name and distracts those who don't yet know him from seeing the glory of God. That's not why he did it. So what about you? What about this church? We serve a God who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's never changed and never will. He came with a single-minded focus and he finished the job. He came to seek and save the lost, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free and make a way where there was no way. He came to call us into a relationship with himself and to show us what it looks like to pour ourselves into the lives of others and to announce and pronounce us children of God. And that reality changes 
everything. It has for the last 2,000 years and it always will. So I invite you to change. You do it all the time anyway. When we first came up here to Virginia Beach, I was driving on your infamous 264 out there. And I was sitting back here in my car, and Sarah will tell you, and up ahead of me, there's just, I'd never seen so much weaving in my life. Just like cars change, cars changing lanes for no reason to, but to change a lane. I didn't understand. Like, I thought, okay, he's going off of the exit. No, just kidding. He just wanted to change lanes. He's just, he just keep on going. He's, he's not even passing anybody. He's just changing lanes. You change all the time anyway. Will you take a step today and raise the bar? What I'm asking for you today is this. Will you take this verse... And will you go home and will you just look at it, read it, pray about it? Will you allow God to work on your heart to the point where you can at least say the first two words? Yes, Lord. See, if we can all start there, then low-bar Christianity will be defeated. And if we as a church can agree that low-bar Christianity has no place in this church, it has no place in each of our families, it has no place in each person's life, then we will discover what God wants to do. In our Christian culture today, there's not just low-bar Christianity. There's also a misguided polar opposite, which is expressed in a push to become radical or exceptional. No offense to the authors of those book titles. Given the state of our country, many are also calling for a revival or return to being like the first century church in both practice, polity, and miracle working. So as I land the plane today, I want to address a few things I've heard since I've been here as clearly and concisely as I can. This book is not full of radical and exceptional people. It's full of ordinary, humble, submitted people who dared say, yes, Lord, over and over and over and over again. Despite how cool it is in concept or theory, we can't travel back in time. God's not asking us to be a first century church and practice polity and miracle working. He calls us to be like the first century church, but in principle, passion, and proclamation. About a year and a half ago, I was meeting with my discipler, the man who owns a dry cleaning business, and we were reading through the Gospel of John. And we got to the story of Jesus calming the storm. Ever since I was in college, I have tried to calm storms, literally. I walked out into our college campus during the middle of a big old huge downpour. I stood there in the middle of that big old lawn and I looked up at the sky and I said, be still, and I got wet. It's kind of like my miracle dream. Like, I just want to be able to calm a storm. And so we read that in the, with my discipler. And I told him that little story. I said, you know, Steve, I've always wanted to be able to calm a storm. And, uh, and he looked at me. He didn't miss one beat. He said, Chris, don't you think you've calmed a lot of storms? Don't you think that you have multiplied the bread and the fishes and fed people? 
Don't you think that you have healed broken hearts? Don't you think that you have helped blind people see and mute people speak and deaf people hear? Which is it that's really greater, Chris? The calming or working of some physical element or the changing of people's lives? What is the greater thing that you've done? That's just a little subtle plug for discipleship. You just never know what's coming at you. I will never forget that moment. Don't fear or flee the ordinary. Embrace it for what it is. Most of life is full of ordinary things. Steve and I don't like just drive home preaching at cars as we drive by <laughs> and preaching at our neighbors out of the window. I mean, we, we do the same thing. But while you live out your ordinariness, keep your eyes on the one who is truly radical, exceptional, and the lover of your soul. In keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, you will have opportunities to perform miracles every day, many times every day. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this, revival doesn't come when the lost get saved in Jesus. It comes when the saved get lost in Jesus. You hear that? Revival doesn't come when the lost get saved in Jesus. It comes when the saved get lost in Jesus. Pastor Chris, why are you coming so strong out the gate, man? I thought, you, I thought you'd be like, hey, this is who I am, and friendly, smiley sermon. You didn't do that, man. Why, why, are, you, why are you so intense? How many of you go to this uh, Tuesday morning women's Bible study? Rest, restless thing? Raise your hand for me real quick. Okay. Good. I wish y'all were reading the book. I understand you guys don't all, it's not like required reading or not. Just get the book. Read this book. Page 13. This woman, Jeannie Allen. Today, for instance, I fight a deep desire to shut down and all this work and to crawl back into bed and live like it's not important. I still feel restless. I struggle to keep pace with God and I still fight my sin. But that's how I feel. Let me tell you what I know. Our God is real. Our God is coming. Our God has plans for us. Our lives are short. We must get after it because heaven is coming fast and what we're about to do here is urgent. It's more urgent than we could ever imagine. We get to play little parts in the epic story of a God who put this whole universe in motion with a word. Why am I coming so hard? Look at our country. Look at what's happened in the last 48 hours in the world. The European Union is collapsing. Brazil is in chaos. Our own country is a mess. And the question has changed from if it collapses to when. That's reality, folks. That's where we are. And what drives me as a pastor 
is when I look at the American church, when the collapse comes, and I don't, I'm not going all Armageddon end times here. We can bounce back from it. I'm just saying when the wheels fall off, because they're going to fall off. Everybody just needs to get that in their head. They're going to fall off. When they fall off, is the American church ready to absorb the chaos, to absorb the fear and the anxiety and the questions that will be asked? I say absolutely not. The American church is not ready. And I don't know how long we have to get ready, but that's what drives me to do all that I can, as best I can, so that we're ready when it comes. The Olympics are coming up soon. I'm going to close with this, this last concept for you guys. I've been watching the trials. I'm kinda, I kind of geek out on the Olympics. I just think they're fantastic. So I've been watching, you know, the men's gymnastics and high bar and you know, the hurdles and the thing they jump over the pole vault and the hurdles and so this whole thing about raising the bar right if the olympics if in the olympics the hurdle was this high would that be very exciting no what if the pole vault was here it's just it's not real exciting right so low bar christianity what's the what's, what's the point I mean, come on. Here's the other thing, though. What we can trap ourselves into using the Olympics is we watch the Olympics to see these people do the amazing things that only certain people can do. Right? I mean, I could train for a long time, and there's a whole bunch of Olympic stuff that I've never, ever, 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 ever be able to do. And I was in the Olympics in 1996, but that's a different story for another day. So, oh, see, I got you now. You're thinking, what in the what? what? That's good. That's good. I get you, see, I get you coming back. I got you coming back. So the problem with taking the Olympics and transferring it to the Christian life directly is that it becomes the achievements of the Christian life become something only a few people can do. And I just told you, this book is not full of exceptional people. They're full of regular people doing amazing things because they said, yes, Lord. So what I'm going to do, my goal here with the bar, is to not raise it so high that you can achieve it. My goal is to raise the bar so high you can never achieve it. Because here's good evangelical churches teach this. You cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can save you, right? And then we turn around and do what? Okay, now go be a great Christian on your own. And guess what? The super great ones achieve something, and most of the rest don't. But that's a lie. See, if you can't save yourself, you can't become like Jesus on your own either. So the bar has to be so high that no one can hit it unless God himself helps you hit it. Wow. You understand that? That's what I'm saying. It has to be so high, no one can hit it.
unless God comes along and empowers us to hit it. That's the equalizer of the whole thing. It's not so low that we don't need God, and it's not so high that we can get it ourselves. It's so high that we can't possibly hit it without Jesus. That's where we're going. So see the real high bar. Embrace the ordinary. Learn from the first century church, but be the 21st century church. Proclaim the miracle and get lost in Jesus. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you. For your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Those of you that are involved in ministry time, if you'd come on up. Those of you in the worship team, if you'd come on back up. What I'd like to see us do in the next few minutes is I want you to not rush into singing. I don't want you to rush into just brain dumping everything I just said. I want you to ask yourself, am I willing to live the kind of life that says, yes, Lord? on a consistent basis. Because if you can just start with those two words, it will change you, it'll change your family, it'll change this church. And so if you want to come pray with somebody, please come on up. If you want to pray on your own, if you want to come pray at this, this altar of steps, just come do that. But let's take the time and allow the space for the Lord to work. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, as I said in the sermon, every spiritual journey begins by saying, yes, Lord. And today is that day for you. Come as the Spirit leads.